Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's podcast episode, we have the incredible writer Leslie Jameson. You've probably heard of her from her New York Times bestselling book, The Empathy Exams, as well as many others, like her novel, The Gin Closet, and her most recent memoir, The Recovering. But today we're going to talk about, most specifically, her new collection of essays, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. It was so wonderful to have Leslie on the show. I think you're going to fall in love with a creature called 52 Blue. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so lucky to have Leslie Jameson here. I have wanted to have you on Lit Up for so long and um, I had requested and I'd been put off and finally (laughs) you're here. Um, Thank you for coming. I'm so happy to be here. I can already tell we have a thousand things to talk about and probably not enough time. Yeah. (laughs) It's nice to feel that resonance from right off the bat though. So maybe this isn't the question you would expect to come first, but what did you think of the thunder from down under? (laughs) (laughs) It's great. I've never, ever had that question before. I, you know what? I loved it. And I loved it. I loved it in part because one of the things I believe in most deeply in living and writing is surprise and those moments when we surprise ourselves. And I never once expected to be watching the thunder from down under at the Excalibur in Las Vegas. And there I was watching the thunder from down under and the sheer fact of doing the thing you never once thought you would do has its own kind of thrill to it. There's a, I don't know if you know the comedian Kyle Kinane, but he has this great bit in one of his comedy sketches where he's basically describing doing his laundry at a laundromat and the dryer burns his laundry into like a hardened meteorite. And he says, I, I didn't even know that could happen. I didn't even know that was a possibility. And he said, a miracle is just when the world surprises you. And I kind of, I think that the thunder from down under was like my meteorite <laughs> of, of, of hardened laundry, like the thing I didn't even know was in store for me. Well, and we should explain that it's a lot of semi-naked Australian men. Yes. Is it because it struck me because I also went to Vegas yeah. for a bachelorette party. Did you guys go? Well, everyone else went, oh. but I had had <laughs> Mexican food. I just did not feel well. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to sit this one out. And everyone else mm-hmm. went to the Thunder from down on and, and on. And you know when you're sharing <laughs> a hotel room with five other women? Yeah. And I just kept waking up. And I was like, they're not home yet. Are they all right? The sun came up. They're not <laughs> home yet. Now, they didn't go off with any members of the I mean, Thunder that's from the natural next question. I, I hoped. Um, but I remember missing out on it and actually reading in bed but being so happy and kind of smug, being like, I... I'm not at the thunder from Diana, but I'm cozy in bed. But I re- regretted not going. To what was the what was the report from your fellow very, bachelorettes? Just good, really fun. Yeah, and quite a good show. Yeah. And they're like they're they great dancers. Yeah. yeah, I remember feeling like some of the numbers were pretty catchy too. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's. I think we actually went to Mexican food beforehand as well, and I wonder if that's if there's a little tradition there that almost, not to say this is what happened with you, but 
if that if that ordering gives people a a way out who need a way out, you know what I mean? <laughs> sort of a little bit of a a Mexican food alibi too. But um, it sounds like the rest of their night was more exciting. There were stories because... that I probably can't tell <laughs> in a public forum. I mean, all that happened to us was was uh, we didn't stay out till dawn, but we did. So you write in the book, we did get accosted by a group of women in an SUV who were shouting at the bride, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then they all, it was like a dream, had the logic of a dream, as does a lot of Vegas, actually, where the women just leaned out of their car and said, don't do it. We're all divorced. And they felt like the ghost of Christmas future or something like that. That was like, and I didn't know if they just cruised the strip each night looking for bachelorette parties to like deliver their wicked wisdom or, or, or what, but it, it did have more of an ominous cast than whatever took your friends out past dawn. I think I, that, I feel like that's a great premise for a TV show. (laughs) These women, did you ever read, is it Paul Keogh? I could never say his name who wrote the alchemist but the valakries oh no i didn't read it haven't read his work it's about um, a group of uh, lesbian bikey women who are also valakries so kind of angels i guess and i always just imagine them in the desert bringing their wisdom to people yeah yeah yeah. these these women are maybe doing that right now (laughs) somewhere somewhere across across the country from us So I want to dive in more to your book and we don't have to talk about Vegas the whole time, but you did structure it in this, these three parts, longing, looking and dwelling. And I wasn't sure which one to delve into first, but I think I do want to know about um, this whale who is almost like the Pavarotti of whales. Now, I don't know if Pavarotti was done for me tooing. So I don't know if we want to liken this big whale to Pavarotti, but he, why was he so special? Yeah. So, um, well, I guess one quick thing to say about those three sections of the book, and I'm glad that you brought it up because it was a bit of a last minute addition to divide the book into three sections. But once I decided to do it, it felt so right. Like I couldn't have imagined the book any other way. And I was really thinking about it as um, depicting what it means to get closer and closer to things. So a lot of the essays in the first section are about sort of having obsessions with or longings towards things that are sort of far away or abstract or elusive. And then that second section is sort of staging some encounter where you're trying to get closer to a thing, a text, a photograph, a place, and like really examine it. And then that third one is about really about living, but about living inside of things, inside of homes, inside of relationships, what it means to be close up to things and and dwelling inside of them rather than sort of longing for them from far away. And the essays are also moving from really big reported pieces in the beginning of the book to more critical pieces that are examining to to much more personal pieces by the end. Um, But that first essay in the book called 52 Blue is about this very special blue whale who is special really for two reasons. And the first is that his, the um, audio engineers who worked at this naval base on Whidbey Island up in Washington state, when they first discovered this whale, they couldn't believe what they were hearing because his song was much, much higher pitched than any other blue whale's song that had ever been recorded. They knew that he was a blue whale from the 
the nature of the song. It was clearly a blue whale song, but it was just, yeah, he was just, it was, it was, it was high pitched. And every time they tracked him, they knew it was him because his song was so unusual and they always tracked him alone. Most blue whales travel in pods, but he was always by himself. And uh, when they published their findings, they really remarked upon both the singularity of his song, but also the fact that he seemed to be often on his own. And from that, this whole mythology started to grow. People started to call him the loneliest whale in the world. People from all over the world, for their various reasons, became pretty obsessed with him and and pretty focused on him as a mascot of whatever they needed him to be the mascot of loneliness, autonomy, heartbreak, proud, independent solitude. He means something different to everybody who loves him. Well, yeah, everyone projects their own want and need onto him. Um, But there's a whole, well, the romantics. Can you talk about how they, Emerson and Roosevelt, and I think... um, I think you mentioned him in this essay, but it feels like a thread that weaves in and out about how much we humans need to project or we need animals and even nature to have meaning for us and we're always looking for meaning, but that actually that whole idea of kind of seeing a fake meaning or the wrong meaning in something obscures us from the truth. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely a tradition in the romantic poets, although it predates them, of, you know, what we call the pathetic fallacy. So projecting our interior emotional lives onto nature, um, seeing one's own chaotic storm of feelings inside, like as a storm actually happening outside and raining down on the land. And um, uh, one of the things I was really drawn to in Emerson's writing is that he's very intelligent about how we do this, how we turn nature into into metaphors. And, you know, um, he talks about using these grand figures of nature to express our, like, little human sentiments is like roasting eggs over the embers of a volcano. Like, that there are these, like, sort of huge things and we're, we're using them in service of, of our very small lives. But he also has a kind of tenderness towards that, process and I think understands that we we are we live in our small and petty feelings so of course we're experiencing the world through the lens of those feelings um Teddy Roosevelt was a, you know obviously a great uh, defender of the natural world and so much of his policy was geared towards protecting the natural world and so he really took offense at the ways that who, writers who he called the yellow journalists of the woods um writers who were constantly sort of turning uh, animals into like anthropomorphizing them in, in these like very unrealistic ways. So saying like, oh, these ducks have set up a little hospital when they hadn't really set up a hospital at all. That was just what had gotten projected onto them. And he really resisted that process because he said, as you suggested earlier, that projecting our own narratives onto nature actually does a kind of damage to nature because it obstructs us from seeing what's actually amazing about nature by by putting our own forms of amazingness onto it, sort of piling them on. I guess, yeah, we have to let animals be animals <laughs> instead of humanize them. Yeah. And I think, you know, where I, and I don't think this is a, a 
spoiler exactly because it's not like a narrative cliffhanger of an essay, but w- the closing image of, of the essay is imagining these two whales parting ways and cutting two paths across the water. And those two whales I'm imagining as the actual whale and the whale that our collective human imaginary has constructed. And both to me have a a value and an existence. So the blue whale probably isn't experiencing all the things that people project onto him. And it's important to recognize that, but what people, the character that people have turned this whale into, like that character has an existence now too. And to me, I don't want to uh, destroy that that character of that whale or banish or really characters, plural, because everybody's built him a little bit differently in their own minds. But I wanted to sort of recognize the difference, but also try to illuminate what was beautiful about each one and end up doing a lot of interviews with these devotees of the whale to really figure out what what he meant to them and what he'd done for them because there was something that seemed to me quite profound about what they had wanted to put into the vessel of this whale. Well, it's that power of belief, which is what faith gives us or in Leonora's case, the faith in this whale. So you write about um, Leonora, a woman who um, has had a very serious illness and finds out about the whale and it really draws her through her um, recovery. But you write, she had a deep desire to understand her life as something structured by patterns woven through signals, woven through signs and signals and voices. And this whale helped her make sense of her entire life, which doesn't really make sense, you know, if we're being rational, but it's what she needed. How does this essay flow into the essay about um, children and their past lives? What a tangent. No, but it's it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful connection and it's a beautiful question. And I really do want that first essay to feel knitted together with that, with the second one. And one of the things that's exciting to me about putting together a collection, especially when some of these pieces had appeared in different forms in other places, was the idea that they could be something together that they couldn't be apart. And the first three reported pieces, the um, 52 Blue about the whale, We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live Again, about kids with past life memories, and Sim Life, about people who build these elaborate lives online on Second Life, all feel, they feel like this triptych to me. They feel so connected. And some of the connections between the whale essay and the past lives essay really do have to do with that quote that you located about having a desire to see our lives structured by patterns and secret meanings. And, you know, this is not like an objective truth. It's true for everybody. Some people get quite angry about like the assumption that there is a, you know, kind of larger order. I think that ignores a lot of what's chaotic and meaningless about the worlds. But um, I do, it was something I noticed in a lot of the people that I interviewed was, was the comfort that they took in the idea of 
these structuring patterns. So for Leonora, she could see the whale as this totem animal who was who had found her on this particular point in her journey when she was recovering from this illness, this medically induced coma. She was learning how to speak again. She was learning how to walk again. And she saw in the whale a figure who was pretty alienated from his kind, but was sort of proudly independent anyway. And that's what that's the kind of existence she wanted to imagine for herself, and she found it in him. Um, with these kids who had past life memories and their families, and I was thinking in particular a lot of times about their parents, I noticed the ways in which the stories of their kids' prior lives, whether it was a tobacco farmer in Virginia or a naval air pilot in World War II, these past lives gave parents a way to understand why their kids were the way they were in this life. So, um, for example, the the boy whose mother believed he had been a tobacco farmer in a previous life, she she thought that the kind of soul of an old man was still inside of him and that it, this old soul made it harder for him to relate to people his own age, which helped her and I think him understand why it was kind of difficult for him to make friends or whether it felt hard, you know, why it felt hard for him to find a girlfriend in college. And actually these very ordinary, no less powerful for being ordinary, but but quite common predicaments sort of then had this elaborate root structure of narrative underneath them that, you know, he's having trouble finding a girl because he's got this 75-year-old tobacco farmer inside of him. You know, it's not necessarily where the mind goes first, but <laughs> I was really struck by the way that these stories did feel in service of an understanding of the universe in which things had causes and explanations and order. The young boy that did um, wake up from these dreams of being a fighter pilot, it did seem quite remarkable, though, the specificity of the names he was calling out. How did you feel when you started doing more research? Well, it was interesting. So this boy, James Leininger, who grew up in Louisiana, I went to visit him and his family in, in Lafayette at a certain point in reporting the piece. Um, you know, I was I was struck as the parents had been struck by, you know, just these proper nouns that had come out of his mouth when he was three years old. And they really had no explanation for where they could have come from. He was saying the word natoma, which ended up being part of the name of a naval aircraft carrier stationed off the coast of Japan during World War II, the Natoma Bay. And his father was, you know, really a skeptic at first and then really came around to believe that his son was having these memories from a prior life. But then, of course, the skepticism became part of the story, right? Like a way to almost anticipate and preempt the skepticism of others to say, oh, look, I understand you're a skeptic. I was a skeptic too. And then I was convinced. Um, But I was, you know, I was really struck by an interview that I did with a a child psychiatrist named Alan Ravitz, where I was, you know, asking him essentially, what's another explanation for these things that are happening? You know, if, if they're not coming from past lives, what's a sort of psychological explanation for what might drive these sorts of behaviors or memories in a kid? And and I was expecting him to kind of say, look, like past lives aren't real. Here's the rational explanation for what's happening. But his first response to this story was like, huh, that's pretty weird. <laughs> like, you know, I don't necessarily 
Those are pretty unusual things for a kid to be saying. And he did definitely speak about processes of reinforcement where if a kid is getting attention for telling stories, they'll keep telling them. I mean, it's well documented that and you spend two minutes around a child and it's well documented like that kids do things that get them attention, even if it's negative attention or even if it's skeptical attention, just getting attention is itself a reinforcer. And so that could clearly contribute to some of these. But he he was much more perplexed than I expected and had much more of a an agnosticism, I guess, than I was expecting. And so, and certainly for myself... I wasn't necessarily convinced by some of the scientific explanations I heard for how past life memories might work, but I do feel pretty deeply that I don't understand everything there is to understand about consciousness or mortality or what happens to us after we die. And um, it feels much more both freeing and honest to me to say I, I don't quite know and I'm pretty interested in how these families are building these stories, probably more interested in that than I am and coming down with some final judgment on whether they're true or not. I love that about all the essays because you start in one place, but through the openness and leading, I mean, I guess that's what great journalists do, isn't it? One story begets another story and then the whole thing has changed and I heard you on the long form podcast, which was so wonderful. And then you talking about those moments in an essay or in a story where the bottom drops out of it. And it's like that, uh aha, oh, oh, where it's about this. Yeah. I, I, so I teach in the MFA creative nonfiction program up at Columbia and like it's one of the things I've talked to my students about all the time. One of the ways in which I get so excited about their writing is when I have those moments when I'm reading them where I feel like the floor drops out and you think you are in a room of a certain size with a certain set of questions. And then you realize like, oh, this room is so much bigger. And have you ever been to Disneyland or Disney When World? I was very young. So you might have been either too young to go on this ride or um, so young that you don't remember it, but maybe you do remember it, at the in the Haunted Mansion, there's a, a kind of an opening chamber where you're standing in this wood-paneled room and there are these kind of oil paintings on the walls. And, you know, they seem to be of one thing. The one I remember best is a little girl in a pink dress who's standing on a tightrope over a body of water. But at a certain point, the walls of the room lower down and you see that there are these parts of the paintings that you couldn't see in the beginning. And in the case of the little girl in the pink dress, you see that there's actually an alligator coming up out of the water that's about to devour her. And I always think about the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland when I say that thing about the floor dropping out because I think, oh, that not that it always has to make an essay more sinister, but that's one of the things that's about to me is saying, oh, you thought this was an essay about a little girl in a pink dress, but it's actually an essay about the alligator that was just outside the frame. But it reminds me too, um, in your memoir, The Recovering, you also mentioned that in the 12-step program, your part of it is um, trying not to be skeptical about certain things and going into, I'm sure, I don't know specifically, but 
looking at the stories you've told yourself about your childhood or why you are the way you are and why we are the way we are um, and, you know, what other people have done to us or not done or not loved or not loved, but how when we kind of reframe everything, there's just this, well, for a while, maybe a mess, but then you can kind of put things back together again. I'm wondering for you through that process, like what was the reconfiguring like? And I feel like that openness feeds into these essays, a kind of a, it's a such a lack of um, condescension. It's just a kind of wonder and interest in humans and how we're trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I love that connection. It feels really true to me. And there are really a number of connections between my practice as a journalist and, or I always feel like I need to put quotes around journalists when I say I never went to journalism school and I'm still somebody who like gets a little sweaty before I ever have to do an interview. But, um, so I never really feel like a, like a pro, but, um, certainly this like turn outward in my writing life felt very connected to my life and recovery to me, this sort of primal state of curiosity about other people's lives and other people's stories was not something recovery introduced me to. It had always been there, but recovery really structured into my life. Just the, the fact of for many hours each week, just sitting there and listening to other people's stories and feeling so compelled by that, even when their stories weren't the kinds of stories that we're used to reading in the newspaper about people with quote unquote newsworthy lives, but very ordinary people, how compelling their lives were to me. So I think I really took that curiosity into my life as a writer as well. And then as you were saying, really brought this doubt about the nature of skepticism itself or particularly a certain kind of knee jerk skepticism whose first impulse was to dismiss and I try to bring a first impulse of wondering where something comes from rather than like whether or not it's true. Not that that latter question isn't also important, but a, a friend of mine who has a, a Buddhist practice gave me this image once of, I don't know, I'm going to massacre the words like a Buddhist master of some kind. Is that even a phrase? But of, you know, when there's a man throwing sticks, you can follow you can follow the sticks or you can look back at the man who threw them. And it was a way of thinking about conflict, right? Where when somebody is saying sort of cruel or aggressive things to you, you can sort of chase down the things they're saying and pick up the stick and like wrestle with it and gnaw at it. Or you can look back and say, I wonder where that, what set of feelings that statement came from. And I guess I, once I had that image in my mind, I started to think about a lot of my writing as invested in something similar, like rather than say, just sitting there and wrestling with the stick of like, is this kid actually a reincarnated World War II naval pilot or not? Like I was sort of interested in like, where did the, when his, when his parents really got behind that narrative, like what set of desires was that, was that coming from? Um, and just to give one more kind of personal example about of the kind of reframing of the narrative that that you were alluding to and that idea of like when you drop the old narratives for a while things are just kind of a mess and then you know then you start to 
make a new kind of sense of it all. That seems absolutely right to me. But there's an essay in the third section of the book about the men in my family. And and in that that essay, I wrote one version of in 2013 and then really substantially revised in 2018 for the collection. And it was became a totally different essay in part because I realized that a lot of the stories that I was telling myself about my relationship to my father and other men in my family were sort of too easy and too simple and that those five years between the first draft of the essay and its revision had really witnessed like an evolution and in, in understanding of some of those narratives and the revision became a way to explore that. Speaking of your relationship with your father and the men in your life and longing, there's a, a few quotes that just struck me and I'm wondering if you can connect them for me. So one of them is that you kind of described yourself as a young girl, as the story of a little girl yearning for elusive men. And I'm wondering how that little girl um, became the woman who spent her 20s becoming like her father. Yeah, so I think a lot of people do this. I know I certainly did. When I was a teenager, I, I was very aware of and invested in the ways that I was totally different from my father. I think I had a lot of anger at him for a number of reasons. And, you know, it was just very invested in the idea that we were like very different people who lived in very different ways and the things that he had done, I would never do. And, um, you know, I think so much of life is about learning that the black and white stories we tell ourselves are like not usually true or they're not the whole truth. And so I, you know, as I kept living and started witnessing in myself certain patterns or traits or impulses that actually seemed uncomfortably similar to my father, things like a certain kind of restlessness, wanting to be in motion physically and geographically, really loving to travel and loving that feeling of 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 moving from place to place. Um, also sort of moving between relationships was quite thrilling to me. Being unfaithful in relationships was something that I surprised myself by doing. That was one of the big things that I had always told myself was like a primal difference between me and my father. Um, thinking about the ways in which my relationship to booze was another kind of, another iteration of restlessness, I guess, a way to kind of get outside myself or get outside of how a given moment felt. So all those forms of restlessness, like motion, relationships, drinking, all of those started to really remind me of my dad. And again, I think a lot of people go through this process of sort of, um, resenting their parents in different ways and then realizing that they're becoming their parents in different ways. And I think all it's, it's not that either of those is, is the total truth and more that like our parents are many things at once and we're many things at once. And there's this sort of partial, but not total overlap between those like multiple selves. Um, so I think, you know, there was this process of, of thinking of my father as, as this very elusive figure, but then realizing that I myself was somebody who 
who was both drawn to elusive figures and also drawn to sometimes being an elusive figure, that both of those were true for me. I definitely resonated with that and thought you talk a lot about longing and um, feeling comfortable in a state of longing and that actually the longing was better than the having. I I thought, oh my gosh, someone's just said what I have... I had started to identify that about myself kind of recently in the last few years and thinking, you know, I was very, very comfortable in long-term relationships where I felt I was loved from afar, but I had all my independence. Yeah. And like you say in the book, after the, once I got bored in a relationship, I, when I was younger, I thought the other person was boring, but it was actually me not wanting. Yeah to stay and actually have the mundane be part of my life. Because I was like, I don't live in the mundane. And so I'll just move on to the next thing. Whereas everything, any person, you can love them or not, life gets real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that resonates so much. And it's probably still in lots of ways an, an ongoing reckoning for me as well but i'm i'm really i'm interested in that question of how the mundane realities of life can can be compelling and infinite and i'm interested in that question in a kind of life way of like how how can a relationship um keep yielding and keep deepening how can the floor keep dropping out even when you hit that, almost like especially when you hit that stage of dailiness and not everything is like the drama of the honeymoon phase. And um, there's a great line. There's a poem I love by this poet named Jack Gilbert called Tear It Down. And one of the lines in that poem, he says, um, we must break through marriage into marriage. And one of the things I think he means there, or like the whale is what it means to me, is this idea of, you know, that you have to keep reinventing the thing and you have to keep finding more in the thing. And one of those forms of more, I think, is to feel daily, mundane, banal existence as like a site of meaning and interest rather than like the end of meaning and interest. And I keep writing about these. I keep finding myself writing about these art exhibitions that seem to be quite interested in ordinary life. Like I, I just wrote this big piece about the Gary Winogrand color photography exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. And I'm just starting another one about this e- exhibition of um, home movies that's going up, that's up at MoMA, like um, home movies made between 1907 and 1991. And it's really stunning to go in there and, and look at them. But it's so much about like the mundane being actually really extraordinary. And I think some of my friends in the best marriages, from what I can imagine, one of my best friends from home who has four kids and um, seems to have a really loving and fun kind of marriage, she posted on Instagram the other day, she was like, Friday afternoon, cooking spaghetti bolognese with a tinny, which is like a tin of beer, you know, a can of beer. Like, is anything better than this? And I thought, oh my gosh, there is nothing better than cooking spaghetti bolognese. Probably on a, I mean, a rainy or sunny afternoon. Like, I think for her, you know, the house might be quiet. She might have just that peace for herself. And 
I just, it was so beautiful. And I was so pleased she shared that moment. I love that. I also think, I think that making spaghetti bolognese with a beer would, would also feel that much more beautiful if you could call the beer tinny. It's so much, it's so much like superior language for that, for that object. I know, a very Aussie slang <laughs> word. I know, it was great. Speaking of exhibitions, I do want to talk about um, one of the essays in the book that is so poignant, I mean, to everyone. And it's a it, the essay you've called Museum of Broken Hearts. Um, is it true that the actual exhibition is called the Museum of Broken Relationships? Yeah. Okay. I like Broken Hearts better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's um so it's a, it's an essay about about breakups um but it's grounded in an exploration of and a visit to this pretty incredible museum in Zagreb, Croatia called the Museum of Broken Relationships that is a collection of objects donated by ordinary people. Each object signifies uh, and is is sort of an artifact from a relationship that has ended. So everything from very dramatic objects and acts that a man used to destroy his ex's furniture, <laughs> um, a, a, a playlist from a mixtape that a teenage boy who was fleeing Sarajevo during the the Balkan Wars gave to another girl in the convoy that he was leaving with um, because she had forgotten all of her tapes. And, you know, that that was this sort of like incredibly dramatic moment to think about giving up your mixtape and to this girl you never met and that you sort of felt like maybe she was the love of your life. Like, you know, these really extraordinary stories, but also very ordinary objects, a toaster, a toilet paper dispenser, um, but that you just, you can feel, of course, like anybody who's been in a relationship knows like the ordinary objects that populated your shared daily existence with this person, they just carry like a sponge so much of the feeling of that relationship, especially once the relationship is over. So, but it's literally a museum in which these objects are on pedestals, in glass vitrines, sort of on display as if they were art. Um, And that was one of the things that I found really moving about it was like that these artifacts just from ordinary lives were like worth being in a museum. And in fact, many of the Many of the objects now come from people who visit the museum and then donate their own objects. So, and the so part of the piece is about the museum. I interviewed the founders of the museum who have a, an extraordinary story of their own. They founded the museum after going through a breakup of their own, but now have been running this museum together for like ten years. So they have this whole other chapter to you know in the aftermath of their broken romantic relationship they have this relationship as as co-curators and and museum runners um but the piece sort of moves from that museum to think about breakups more broadly and some of my own breakups and particularly how we carry the relationships that we're no longer in inside of us how they remain a part of us I loved using the example of the founders of the museum um, because so many relationships have a whole other life after they end. And that seems to be a huge part of the book that I related to, that 
you know, romantic relationships aren't only as good as the period that they were alive and that um, they aren't just a stepping stone to the one. I think we need to kind of think about them like novels we've read or like that are parts of us that were beautiful and had a beginning, middle and end, but that still live on. And can you tell us, because it's such a poignant um, a story or just kind of a, an amazing story about Marina Abramovic um, and what she did yeah. with yeah. her ex. Yeah. Yeah. There's a particular performance from Marina Abramovic. And for many years, Marina Abramovic would do these performances with her partner, Ulai. So they were together romantically, they were together creatively. And so in a way, it made sense when they decided to end their relationship, they did a performance together to mark the ending of it. But I liked, first of all, I liked that they chose to do a performance together as a way of honoring their ending rather than feeling that their ending was something they had to do separately. And the performance that they conceived of was a performance that took months and it involved each of them starting on opposite ends of the Great Wall of China and over the course of many, many days walking towards each other until at a certain point they met and they embraced and then they parted ways again and didn't see each other, I think, for decades. And it's like... (laughs) Such a moving thing to contemplate. They documented it as well. And the, the the way I first came to it was at a, I guess I knew about it, but I really first saw it at this career retrospective of Marina Abramovich's work at the um, Museum of Modern Art in Stockholm. And they had these two screens, one of which showed video footage of Marina Abramovich wa- walking and the other showed footage of Ulai walking. And there was something moving to me about that presentation too, because it was like, even though the performance itself was done and had been done for many years, on those screens, they were constantly just still walking towards each other. And it's kind of related to what you were just saying about, which I love, this idea of holding past relationships inside of us like novels or like works of art, where there's a sort of eternal literary present, like in the way that we use the present tense when we're describing the actions in a novel because they're sort of still happening in our in our minds. Like that seemed like what was happening on those two video screens. Like they were living in the literary present of that long goodbye and some part of them was still walking t- toward each other even though their bodies hadn't been doing that for decades. It's such a bold and abrupt title, make it scream, make it burn, to have on a book. You know, it is, it's screaming at you, which I loved. Um, but can you speak to why it, it, it had to be that for you? And also this idea of creating meaning and almost, um, you know, what in our lives can make us feel alive, even if it's taking comfort in the the mundane yeah well first of all I'm glad that you (laughs) like the title I was really happy that my publishers let me get away with it I wasn't sure that they would but they they loved it too um which surprised and delighted me and it, it well so it originally comes from an essay in the collection that's called make it scream make it burn that is 
describing the work of James Agee and his book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, about three sharecropper families in Alabama during the Great Depression. And he worked with the photographer Walker Evans to, to document these lives. And the poet William Carlos Williams, in, in an essay that he wrote about Walker Evans' photographs, said uh, he takes reality and makes it scream. Um, and I think by that he didn't mean that Evans was doing something violent, but that he was finding these layers of urgency dwelling just underneath the surface of what we might easily overlook and that he was sort of finding that urgency and with his photographs bringing out the sort of urgency living in every moment of daily existence. And um, I love that as something that the artist, as one way of thinking about the work of the artist, to find and excavate that urgency inside ordinary moments of our experience. Um, and so Make It Scream, Make It Burn is a way of talking about summoning that urgency and illuminating that urgency. And it's, you know, what I hope these essays do in some ways, like f locating these moments of experience where something feels really heated and really dynamic and alive and... Um, examining those moments of urgency to understand something better about consciousness, about how we regard the consciousness of others, about how we move through our days. Um, so, yeah. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thank you. It's really, it's such a pleasure to talk to you about this book and to feel your mind moving over its ideas and its, its essays and the connections between them. And it's like... All I could ask for as a writer is to have like a reader who's who's for whom the pieces are resonating in that way and who's giving that that acuity and that thoughtful attention back to the book. It really, really means a lot. Oh, thanks. I love the book. And even I love talking to you just as much as reading the book or even a little more. <laughs> thanks again. Uh, well, well, it was wonderful to be here today and really a pleasure to talk. I'm sure you're all eager to go online and listen to the call of 52 Blue. I think what I loved most about reading Leslie's essays and talking particularly about 52 Blue, but also about all the other stories and essays in the collection was just how much we humans project our longings and hopes and fears um, onto things like a beautiful blue whale or stories of past lives, things that make us, that help us make sense of who we are and, and what has happened to us. Um, so I'd love to know what you think. I'm sure this episode will bring up a lot for lots of different people. Uh, do get in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Twitter.